0: Uh. You're listening to Design Tomorrow. You're listening to Design Tomorrow. I'm Chris Butler, and you know what? Designers are some of the most discontent people I know. This can be a good thing, and it can be a bad thing. Designers are problem solvers. We see flaws quickly. We see opportunities for improvement in everything we experience. We want to fix everything that is broken. We just want to bring order to the world. And yet, the thing that gets in the way of us fixing the world, it's you and me. It's us. So today, we'll talk about what it means for designers to get out of their own way, and I'll share a couple of ways that I've made that not only more possible in my life, but more natural to my day-to-day. Design Tomorrow is a podcast about design, technology, and being human, which, admittedly, is a lot to be about. But in all things, we hope to grow in our awareness that what we do and think today can create a better tomorrow. You can follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Design Tomorrow. Just leave all the vowels out. So that's at D-S-G-N-T-M-R-R-W. You can also visit the show's website at designtomorrow.co and if you want to get in touch directly you can email me at chris at designtomorrow.co I'd love to hear from you. And now let's get back to the show. What makes a designer good at what they do? I mentioned earlier that our perception serves us well. We see flaws quickly. We see opportunities for improvement in everything we experience. So of course we are restless. Of course we're not easily satisfied. We can't unsee those flaws. It's a burden. But it's good that we're this way because it is what makes us good at what we do. But there's another side to this. We are also overly sensitive. We are resistant to criticism and we're stubbornly inflexible. We are too easily frustrated when reality resists our first solution. So we push processes forward even when they don't make sense. We prioritize control over care. It's not good that we are this way, because it is what keeps our work from being good. For some designers, the problem begins even before the work. The mere existence of the clients from Helltrope speaks to the deeply ironic fact that many of us begin with this baseline resentment toward the very people who give us something to do. We have got to resist this with the same energy and the same urgency with which we seek to shape the world around us. There are bad clients out there, but they're very few. Most are just good people who need more from a designer than a designer is willing to give. In fact, bad clients are more often the work product of bad designers than they are the adversaries of good ones. Thankfully, bad client-making designers are also rare. Most of us begin with empathy for our clients and optimism for their future. But then the discontent kicks in. And I don't mean the good kind. Among the many designers I know, Most call themselves problem solvers with this almost holy reverence for the term. And yet, so many become reactively dissatisfied the moment there's resistance to their solution, when that, that is the very thing they should expect, if not hope for. First, solutions are far better at exposing more of the problem than solving it. Now, this shouldn't be a surprise. If the problems we're paid to solve were so easily dismissed, then there'd be far less for us to do. If we value the idea of problem-solving as much as we say we do, then we should want the problems to be hard. The alternative would be like an Olympic skier preferring the bunny hill, or for people like us, the very rote, factory, assembly line system that we hope in our work to avoid. We say we believe that design is giving form to intent, but that means that when the input is the same, and the process is the same, and the output is the same, the word no longer applies. Factory would be more appropriate in that context than design. See, a factory is a post-design mechanism. It produces copies of a solution. Its process is not about problem solving, right? But it's about replication at scale. But most of the time, I see designers force the problems they encounter into their own little factories. Now, we do this because we think we've already solved the problem, and why reinvent the wheel? But we're wrong about that most of the time. And if you don't believe me, consider how often our design projects go over budget because of how long it takes to get it right and satisfy our clients. Perhaps if we hadn't tried to stuff their problem into our existing solution, the project would have been smoother, the outcome would have been better, and the client would have been happier. Not to mention us, by the way. We'd be happier too. Why? Well, because we're designers, we want the challenge. Replicating solutions, there's just no challenge in that. Nor is there any risk, which is, of course, the thing we fear. We fear the hard problems because we fear failing to solve them. And this doesn't mean that there's no consistency in design. We may have a way of discovering and exposing the true nature of a problem, or a way of translating our intent to others, right? We may have our proprietary processes, but the intent and the form will be different every time. When we feel resistance, that is reality reminding us what design is. When we're finally getting to the truth. John Cage once said, I am trying to be unfamiliar with what I'm doing. John Cage was a composer known for such an ardent commitment to questioning the nature of music and the role of the composer that his most famous work, 4 minutes and 33 seconds, it's one that is entirely silent. I considered just stopping here and letting the recording go on for another four and a half minutes in silence just to prove how radical Cage was. But I won't inflict that on you. I think you can imagine how radical silence can be, regardless of how long it is, when you're expecting something else. Instead, let's hear from the composer himself. I'm not interested in myself, in my work being communication from me to a listener. I want it to be from the sounds themselves to the listener. So that I make a music for which I am not so much the composer as the listener too. Plenty of people, of course, rejected Cage's work. How can it be music, they argued, if it lacks the very thing of which music is made? Sound. In questioning the nature of music, 4 minutes and 33 seconds also questions the nature of silence. Is there really such a thing? In pursuing this question, Cage discovered that the best answer was one in which he had no part. Imagine that. Such a radical commitment to the process that he was even willing to exclude himself from it. Or, in other words, a solution That is one because it doesn't exist. How many of us could even approach that level of humility? For us, rare will be the case that doing nothing would be better than doing something. But to accept the possibility of that will draw us closer to the truth of every circumstance and to a contentment with the constant change of a world that invites our intent as quickly as it invalidates it. So how can we, as John Cage put it, create unfamiliarity with what we're doing? How can we regularly refresh our perspective so that our work is better? How do we get out of our own way? I've thought about this for many years, and here are just two simple ideas you might consider. Number one, the side project. Most designers I know have spent a considerable amount of their energy and time freelancing, even those who are employed full-time elsewhere. So whether your motivation in doing this is money or experience or both, there's nothing wrong with freelancing. But that's not exactly what I mean by a side project. A side project can be helpful in giving you perspective, as long as it doesn't just feel like an extension of your workday. And that doesn't mean that a side project can't make you money. It just means that in order for a side project to give you perspective and benefit the other work you do, it must be sufficiently different from that work. So maybe it's different in its nature, like a handcraft, if you spend most of your time on a computer, for example. Or maybe it's different just in terms of what it exposes you to intellectually. I can't really prescribe it but I trust you'll know the difference. The point is that side projects feed the ego in a healthy way. They make sure that the emotional needs we have that are tied to our work are met without getting in the way of the work we do for money. Our jobs put a lot of pressure on us simply by being our source of income, and yet we constantly add to that pressure by bringing other, less practical needs to the table. They cloud our perspective, and they put us in our worst state, by the way, that need state, in the way of what would otherwise be good work. I've had lots of side projects. This podcast is one of them. Others have involved speaking at conferences, writing, and even making things. But the side projects that are similar to what I do for a living are especially important to me because they meet all kinds of needs I have emotionally. Especially the need to express my thoughts and engage in intellectual dialogue. And they do this so well that I find it easier to listen to my colleagues and clients and not rush into solutions that I want before I fully understand the problem. And easier to not dominate a meeting simply because I want to talk about ideas that I find interesting and don't realize how wasteful and inconsiderate that can be of others when I try to get that need met on their time. Number two, meditation. The first one is pretty practical. It assumes a surplus of energy and emotion, and it just gives you a better way to wield them. But meditation is not about that. It's about less, not more. When it comes to meditation, I am a novice. I only started meditating a few years ago. But I can tell you that I noticed positive results in my life pretty much right away. Now, I started small. My goal was just to sit on the floor in silence with my eyes closed for five minutes. I didn't set a timer. I didn't use an app. I just began and stopped when it felt like a good time to do so. But I did look at a clock, and I was surprised to discover that I had sat there for 15 minutes. Three times as long as I'd assumed I'd be able to stand. Now, there were a few conditions that probably made that more possible. The first one is that I'd gotten up a bit earlier than normal to try this out, so I didn't feel any time pressure. I wasn't trying to squeeze those five minutes in to what is typically a pretty rigid schedule for me. The second thing, and really this is an extension of the first, it was really, really quiet. No one else was awake in the house, not even our pets. I'd shut myself in a room, so even if the dog or cat did wake up, neither would wander in and disturb me. And the third thing is that I had realized beforehand that the thing that was most likely to get in the way of any benefit I might derive from meditation was my own misunderstanding of what meditation is. See, when I was in college, I attended a Zen meditation group once, and only once. And here's why. When I sat down with the others, the teacher leading the group said that we'd be sitting for an hour and that it was important that we think about nothing. I thought to myself, nothing? How is that even possible? I agonized through that hour, and yeah, I stubbornly sat through every slow second of it, thinking about how thinking about nothing is thinking about something. I walked away thinking how stupid it is to try to think about nothing. Of course, it only occurred to me years later that I probably misunderstood the teacher. Meditation isn't about trying to think about nothing. It's about continually managing the clarity of your mind. So when I sat again a few years ago, My goal was just to sit for five minutes. And rather than try to think about nothing, I'd just focus on my breathing. I'd count it, but without letting numbers accrue. I'd just slowly recite in my head, in and out, as I breathed. In, out. And that's it. And you know what? That worked. I not only outsat my time goal, but I noticed that for the rest of that day... I just felt calmer than usual. I was less quick to say and do things. I felt like I was seeing the world differently. And at work, that's really important because it not only helps us see the problems we're trying to solve in a new light, but it also helps us to see the people around us, their perspectives, their gifts, and their talents, and start to repurpose our energy to include them, if not outright redirect it towards what they're doing. And that is what it means to get out of our own way. Well, friends, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Design Tomorrow. If you did, find the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating and a review. I'm starting from scratch here and I could use all the social proof that you can give me to pull more people like us into this conversation. Thanks for listening. And remember, what we do and think today can create a better tomorrow. I'll see you then. Welcome to the super secret after the credits link section. If you're new to the show, here's how this works. I'm going to read a bunch of links to you, and if you want to click them, you can find them in the show notes right beneath the player. Okay, here we go. Number one, On The Verge. They featured a story about a startup that uses satellite imagery and, of course, machine learning to predict crop yields. Number two, there's a video on YouTube that makes a pretty simple point. Stop taking pictures of your food and just eat it. And guess who made this video? IKEA. Number three. I find the current state of mind-body philosophy and neuroscience so annoying. Because basically, any nonsense is pretty much immediately considered more respectable than the notion that the mind could be separate from the body. Now, if you'd like to read some of that nonsense, the New York Times has it in spades. Number four. If I ever got a tattoo, I suppose I'd prefer it done by a robot. Number five. The music video for Ash Kusha's Beautiful is really, really good. You can watch it on Vimeo. And finally, number six. If you don't have a copy of a primer of visual literacy, you should definitely get one. I refer back to it all the time. I have a beat-up worn copy that I bought used on Amazon that I'm looking at right now on my desk. And that, my friends, is it. Until next time.